Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I was sort of waiting there in the back of the church for whatever comes next. <laughs> and I read my instructions. Well, we are in our, our tenth um, dive into Psalm 119 and related truths and other passages of scripture that that flow from the truths of 119. And two weeks ago, we started looking at, at the idea of, of God's ways. We talked about that this way, it's, it's more, it's more than rules, it's more than commands, more than laws. God's ways are about learning the full character of God. And every command, every law, every, every rule of scripture is an expression of the character. But this wonderful word about the ways of God is challenging us to go deeper than that, to not settle for the surface, to not settle for a checklist, but to go deeper into the, into the transforming awareness of God's character with the determination that we want to learn his character. And, and there's a couple of things we're going to look at today, and I, I almost want to jump ahead and tell you what we're going to learn today, but let's just walk through it bit by bit. And if we look at Psalm 119, verse, uh, let's start with verse 59. Psalm 119, verse 59. Where the psalmist says, I considered my ways, and I turned my feet to your testimonies. And so that, that recognition, and so many scriptures give us this idea, to look at my ways, but that word considered means a, a thoughtful evaluation. A thoughtful evaluation of my ways. And the result of the psalmist doing a thoughtful evaluation of his own ways was to turn toward God's ways. And so the, the idea that you and I get to live as sons and daughters of God, we get to live a thoughtful life. Somebody will remember who, who said this. I sure don't. I read it way back in the early 1800s. But that, that idea that the unexamined life is not worth living. And I don't think that was said by a believer. But God would back it up in deeper ways. That the unexamined life it is a sloppy life. The unexamined life is, is a not growing, fully growing life. And so we get to do two things. We get to examine our ways what are my inclinations? What, what are my natural ways apart from God? But then I also get to consider God's ways and to see the contrast and then agree with him. Father, I want your ways to become my ways. So he says here, I considered my ways. And then I, I like this. I, I turned my feet. And as we've talked about so often, that God's saying, I don't want you to just sit 
in your in your bedroom or your study or at the dining room table and go, wow, that is some really cool truth. Thank you, Father. That's awesome. And then I get up and I go live my day just like I would have lived it anyway. The, the challenge for you and I is that when we're examining the Word of God, that we're recognizing if I'm paying attention, God is always showing me the difference between my ways and His ways. And then He's saying, now get up and walk in a different direction today because of the things I showed you. The, the way you spoke to your children, the way you spoke to your husband or wife, the way you, you the attitude you took to work, the way you looked at, at the news at 10 o'clock. I want all of that to keep changing because you get up from my word and you walk in a new direction. And so that recognition, I'm actually going to turn this into action. It's not just the, the simplicity or the, the self-congratulatory awareness that I now have more knowledge or I have more wisdom. But this is going to change me. I'm going to be transformed more and more into God's ways. And almost every Sunday, I try to challenge myself and, and you in this, that we're, that we try to be specific with God. And that's exactly what this psalmist is saying. I considered my ways. There's a detailed analysis of, Father, where am I not looking like Jesus Christ? I, I like what, what Kim prayed in our opening prayer. He said that out of our work together here today, out of our worshiping God and our singing, out of our fellowship, out of our time in the Word, out of everything that the Holy Spirit is doing here for us today, that you and I would bit by bit be transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That we don't just become smarter theologians. Now, I actually hope, I hope this doesn't sound... Oh, well, however it sounds. I actually hope that all of us keep becoming wiser and wiser and better informed theologians. That our study of the word makes, our, makes us wiser about the nature and character of God. That we understand doctrine and more and more we understand how it connects. And yet part of what God is saying is if you're really paying attention to the word, not just the words of the word, you're paying attention to the heart of the word. You're paying attention to the character of the word. You're, you're hearing the heart of God behind that word that you're going to be transformed into his likeness. And we know that, but what he's saying is choose it on purpose. And then let's look specifically where you're not there. So that every day, every day, there are areas in my life, in your life, where we can go, I know that's not finished. I know that doesn't look like Jesus Christ yet. And God would say, well, then, then let's peacefully, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, let's peacefully but aggressively address that with the Word. Bring more of my truth to bear on that area where you know you are not yet like Christ. And this is about peaceful growth, and I say peaceful, it doesn't mean, it doesn't always mean easy. And it doesn't always mean that I feel good about it. It means God and I are at peace while I pursue growth. But that also includes the fact that I, I bet every one of you has experienced this. There are times when we're looking at the word 
and the Holy Spirit speaks and he shows us an area where we need to grow and we're heartbroken. That's not a peaceful feeling moment, but it's a peaceful process. That God's not condemning us or throwing us away or pushing away. He's saying, but I need your heart broken so that you don't keep loving your way. You don't hang on to loyalty and faithfulness to your way. You, you develop a new attitude toward your way. So let's, let's go back to the Psalm 119 and see that new attitude. We talked about this some. So look at verse 29, Psalm 119, 29. Actually, let's start at 28 because it's a really connected thought. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word and remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law. And the comfort of God applies to all griefs. Griefs from the death of someone you love, grief from, from a tragedy, grief from a loss, grief from a setback, grief from a, a deep disappointment. But what the psalmist is directly addressing here is I looked at my ways and they broke my heart. I need you, Father, I need you working in me to remove every false way because the false ways bring me grief. Now, there's a passage in scripture, we won't go to it, but where he, he says, sin is pleasurable for a season. Just in case you didn't get it, I'll write it down. Sin is pleasurable. And without being too silly about it, if it wasn't pleasurable, it wouldn't be tempting. Here, have some hydrochloric acid. Oh boy, is that tempting. No, have something that tastes really good. One of, one of the temptations for Adam and Eve was actually the tasty appearance of the fruit on that tree. Even though they knew that tree would lead to death, it appealed to them. And it appealed to them by offering them wisdom. It appealed to them because it looked tasty. It appealed to them because it looked like it would expand their horizons in a self-centered way. So it was appealing at many levels, but they said, yeah, I'll have some of that. Sin is pleasurable or it wouldn't be tempting. For a season. Um, most of us who live long enough, and it doesn't sometimes take very long at all, most of us who've lived long enough recognize that if I give myself to sin because it's pleasurable, that season comes to an end. Because then I start to deal with the consequences of sin. And for some people, that might be in three minutes they deal with the consequences. For someone else, it might be 50 years till they deal with the consequences. But eventually that season ends. And, and part of what God is saying is, but if you're in my word, you don't have to be, I use, I'm gonna use a word I don't use frequently. You don't have to be stupid enough to wait 30 years. And in, in, in my home growing up, and then in our home, Carrie and I with Aaron, we outlaw the word stupid. You can't use the word stupid. But I'm not in my home, so I can use the word stupid. <laughs> because it's really stupid to say, I have 
I have this incredible caution and warning, and I have an alternative available to me, but I'm going to go ahead and take the 50-year trip to find out that this was true. And I'm talking about believers. I'm, talking about, I'm not talking about unbelievers. That for believers, we get to say, I want to consider my ways, and I want to come to the Word, where I have an open-hearted, honest conversation with God to say, Father, show me where I'm not like Jesus Christ. Let's be real honest about the fact that that's going to cost me something to stay there. I'm going to damage my marriage. I'm going to damage my relationships. I'm going to damage my fellowship in the body of Christ. Father, I'm going to damage my intimacy of joy with you. I'm going to damage something about the effectiveness of my ministry to others. I will do damage to the degree I hold on to my ways rather than being humbly willing to learn your ways. And so that 28 and 29, I'm grieving because of my ways. Help remove the false way. And a few verses later in verse 128, Actually, it's first 104. 104, from your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. And now in 128, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. We talked about that once before. I like the comprehension of that language. It covers everything. I like the way you think, God, about everything. And it is so easy without meaning to, well, no, that's not the right word. Without admitting it, it's easy to hold back a little bit and go, well, God, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this part. And there are many people experiencing grief and sorrow and loss and damage in their lives because they kept thinking and believing and acting that they could ignore God's ways and keep their ways without a heavy cost. And, and again, I would say, if we could tell stories, if we had about 29 hours, and, and I asked each of you, tell one story in your life where you came to comprehend the cost of sin in your life. I bet most of you could tell a story. Most of you would not want to tell that story, but you could. Because we have all said to fall short of the glory of God, and even as believers, we are unfinished sinners. That is not our identity, but that continues to be a lot of our behavior. And that we get to recognize, Father, every time I clung to my ways, eventually it led to sorrow and loss and damage. And here's the attitude you're asking me to take on. To hate the false way, even if it's one of our favorite ways. So numerous times in counseling through the years with different folks, uh, I've had people quite literally say, I like this sinful way. I'm keeping this sinful way. Or, I'm willing to, to let God teach me about this other thing, or I'm willing for God to uh, help me grow in this other way, but I'm keeping this. I've had young couples unrepentant uh, about their sexual sin. For that matter, I've had old men and women in their, in their quote, maturity 
still choosing sexual sin in defiance of their covenant with God in marriage because they liked it. And still claiming, now I'm still gonna be a faithful Christian all these other ways, but I want what I want and I'm gonna keep getting it. And, and that means this hasn't yet fully matured. So again, make this personal. This is just not about, you know, Archibald and, and his love of sin. This is about you. This is about me. So consider for a moment, seriously, thoughtfully, prayerfully, in, in an actual conversation with God. Father, where is there a way I sort of like my sin? Is there any place in me where, even though I don't like it when I sin and I, I don't like the outcome, but I don't address it, I don't hate it, I, I sort of keep a bargain with it that I'm allowing it to come back later because it sort of comforts me or it feels good or it's what I'm used to or it would be too much work to overcome that sin. That's what I hear real frequently in counseling. It would take so much work to overcome that. And I've already been working on it for six months. How much does God expect? or six years, or six decades. And the bottom line is if you and I are still on planet Earth, and there's still an area where sin holds reign in our life, and we do not yet hate that false way, and we've not yet submitted it to the Father's ways and learning the character of Jesus Christ, God will say, sweetheart, you still got a little time, let's work on that. There's no deadline except the end of life. There's no six month or six decade deadline to overcoming sin in our lives. And plenty of believers, and, and I mean this, plenty of believers have anguished and fought over some area of temptation or sinful slavery in their lives to the point of hopelessness, to a sense of despair of, I guess I will never overcome this. And what's, what's, I guess awesome to me is how frequently someone will, will come to counseling having already decided that. Okay, I gotta figure out how to live with this because I can't overcome this. And over and over again, there's always one more thing that God has available to help them overcome. One more truth that they've never fully clarified. One more strategy of battle that they've never actually tried. But there's something crucial that God's saying, this is missing from your battle, learn this. Decide you hate that false way so bad that you're saying, no matter what it takes, no matter what it takes, I will overcome this. In Christ, with the power and the life and the authority of Jesus Christ dwelling within me, I will overcome this, and I'm not settling for less than victory. And the enemy's there to go, you have fought hard enough, poor guy, poor gal. You should rest now. God understands this one's impossible. I know I told you this story before, and it just it just floored me of a young man who came to his father, and he had an addiction and struggled with pornography. His father was an evangelist who led hundreds and hundreds of people, not Billy Graham, just make sure I'm not tarnishing the Graham uh, reputation. Another evangelist came to his dad and said, Dan, I'm, I'm having this struggle, you know, help me with this. 
And his dad told him, son, you can't beat that. And I'm, yeah, you can't beat that. You just have to keep it within boundaries. You got to give it a nice, safe corner. Don't let it destroy your ministry. Don't let it destroy your marriage. But you can't beat that. And obviously what the dad was speaking about, and more came out after his death, after the father's death, was he was basically saying, I've never defeated it. So now I'm going to teach that it can't be defeated. I'm going to use my sin as the template, which means I erase passage after passage after passage of God's declaration of our authority for victory, and I'm going to say it can't be beat. Now, what his father could have said was, son, I'm still on that journey. I am determined to fight that. Let's fight it together. I haven't finished the battle. I have not yet defeated it, but let's fight it together. But instead, the father had already reached a point of despair. And again, dismissing all those ways of God that would have given him authority and victory and might have been literally the hardest battle of his life without despair, without hopelessness. You have a battle. I don't know each of you. I don't know what your battles are. But fortunately, God does. And what he's saying is, I'm going to help you if you're willing. I'm going to help you if you come and you consider your ways and you recognize the false ways in you and you determine, Father, I don't want to just go, yeah, I should stop that. Yeah, I should change that. God's actually challenging us to a deeper intensity here. He's saying, I want you to get up and fight like you hate that thing. Not out of fear that you fear condemnation. I've already promised you no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You know, and it's amazing to me how many, how many Christian writers I've read through the years, how many sermons I've heard through the years that make it sound like I sort of have to be afraid of God's condemnation if I'm going to get motivated. And, and you know what? God totally disagrees with that idea. He's saying the more you comprehend my grace, my forgiveness, my treasuring you, my welcoming you, my forgiving you, my redeeming you, the more you actually comprehend my effective grace through the complete sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sin, so that now you know, never be afraid to come into my presence. Never be afraid to come to me for help. Oh, Father, you've got to be disgusted with me. No, I was disgusted with your sin. I was horribly disgusted with your sin, and I transferred it to my son. Your certificate of debt was placed on him, Colossians 2 tells us, and I poured out all the wrath that sin deserved on him. All my disgust was poured out on my son. And that's why Jesus could claim and call from the cross, Father, my God, actually, it wasn't Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because you're covered in the disgusting darkness of Reg's sin. We have to be separate for a while, your son, while you become his sin. And your sin. So his disgust, his, his repugnance, his hatred for my sin was real. But it was poured out on someone else than me. Because Jesus volunteered. And it was a willful volunteering. Jesus said, nobody takes my life. I lay my life down willingly. 
And this passage, we've quoted it 10,000 times. They loved us while we were sinners. So he wasn't saying, well, I love the good ones. He says he loved us while we were enemies. And in terms of the good ones, he says, there's none good, not one. There's none righteous, not even one. There's never been in all of human history, one human being who could stand before God and go, Father, I don't need a savior. I just care on my own. And God looks at their life and goes, look at that. You're right. Come on in. You don't need a savior. Jesus, there's at least one. You don't have to die. Impossible. But because it's comprehensive, the sacrifice was comprehensive. And now he says, whosoever will could come. He says that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He desires that all men would be saved. I'm quoting scripture. Those are my ideas. And that God is saying, this sacrifice is your power to be transformed. It's your power to be saved. But now I give you the life of Christ so that you can hate the false way, take on the life and the authority and the power of Jesus Christ flowing within you and set out on a journey to learn and be transformed into the ways of your father, to be transformed into the character of Jesus Christ. Now I'm gonna to go to one of the passages Young David read for us, if you'll turn to Proverbs 3. He read verses 1 through 6. And I think many of you have memorized at least Proverbs 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. But David read for us all six verses, the first six. And it starts with this, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. And again, the recognition, I need to come be taught. I need teaching. This is not knowledge or wisdom that is available to me naturally. I need teaching. And several people I've known through the years who had claimed to be Christian, I, I hope they are, I trust that they repent and come back, came to the conclusion that they were smart enough to not need teaching. Literally said so. I don't need to go to the Word of God anymore. I realized I'm smart enough to figure out the universe on my own. So I'm going to close the Bible and stop reading it and stop studying because it's full of condemnation and darkness. So I'm going to learn this wonderful God that I can get to out of my brain. That is a dark, dark place to go. And it is born fruit in their lives that they have gone to darker and darker and darker places morally in their marriages, in their lives, in their, in their surrender to the ways of the world. To where now they would say they're enlightened and they don't look any different than the world. They're totally immersed in the world because the God that they could come up with pats them on the back and says, it's all okay. Do whatever you want. Which you might know, some of you might know this. That's actually the motto 
of Satanism. The official motto. Satan's been doing it for ten, you know, thousands of years. But the the motto was "Do as you will." Back in the '60s, when Anton Lavey started the Satanist Church, that was his motto. But he didn't make it up. Satan made it up. And it was in place long before it was a motto. It was do what you want. You don't need to surrender to a Lord. We just sang a song and I, I loved it because it, it fits with this. King of my heart. And here in this passage, he says, let your heart keep my commandments. Not just something you do externally, but in the privacy of your thoughts, in the privacy of your attitudes, in the privacy of your priorities and your treasures, bring your heart to love my commandments. Bring your hearts to love my teaching. And then in the same thing, he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Bring your passions, your desires, Bring the things that matter to you more and more to what falls under trusting the Lord so that he is the king of my heart. And that's a beautiful phrase. While we were singing that, I, I hope you were singing it with the intent to keep growing them. I want to see a raising of hands. Is there anybody here in the room who can say, I have now made Jesus 100% completely the king of my heart in all areas, shapes, and forms? <laughs> Yeah, stand back just in case the lightning hits anybody who raises <laughs> No, we're all growing. But we get to pray that prayer. We get to sing that song in an attitude of direction. Father, I am choosing Jesus as the king of my heart. And now there's all these ways for you. not yet the king of my heart. And I have the freedom to bring you those one by one by one. And we'll work on them. And you won't condemn me, you won't throw me away, you won't push me away, you won't frown at me, you will be delighted that I brought you where I need to grow while I keep expanding the territory of Jesus being king over my heart, over my passions, my desires, my priorities. So this is about, you guys must know what word I'm going to put in this is about growth. It's not about success or failure. The enemy loves the measures of success and failure. And it's real simple why he loves that measure. Because by that measure, we're all failures. Nobody can say, I have thoroughly succeeded now. But if growth is what I'm called to, and if growth is what I'm equipped to, then I can succeed every single day of my life while I remain unfinished because I just keep choosing the life and power of Jesus Christ only within me. I keep choosing the ways of God and the word of God. I keep choosing the promises. I keep choosing the offer of God's help. I keep choosing the fellowship of other believers to challenge and support me and pray for me and all that. I keep choosing the word of God as, as daily nourishment for my thinking. And I keep considering my ways. I stay in the conversation with God to say, Father, let's look at where I still need to grow. I'm determined to grow. I'm willing to hear from you where I need to grow. If I never have that conversation with God, I'm probably not going to grow. Quite simply. If I'm not willing to consider my ways 
in light of the Word of God and in light of the Holy Spirit, I'm probably not going to grow. So Paul talks about this. He says, you know, I buffet my body like, like a soldier or like an athlete in training. I demand the most of my effort in this direction. And Paul would still say, I'm the chief of sinners. He never claimed to be finished. In Philippians 3, he says, I'm nowhere near finished. I see that high calling in Christ. I'm not there yet. But every day I press on. I keep growing. And what he was describing was, I keep looking to expand the territory in my life that allows Jesus to be king of my heart. Now, there's also this, I want to say just a moment on this. In this Proverbs passage, verse 3 says, it's such an interesting little thing for him to say. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. And he's tying that to trusting in the Lord. So, kindness, truth. And we will find so many passages of scripture that tie these together. Not necessarily the word kindness, although that one's a frequent one. But what we see frequently is God ties the character of Jesus Christ to the truth of who God is. His nature, his identity, I don't know what word I was getting ready to spell, but it wasn't this one. Identity. That it's never enough to just know knowledge, but it's important. In John, in John 4.24, Jesus said, those who come to God must worship him in spirit and in truth. The truth matters. And I could spend my whole life worshiping the wrong God if I'm not willing to come be taught by God who he is, what his nature is, what his priorities are, what his will for my life is. So there are plenty of men and women, again, who follow their own way. Many put a label of God over it, and they've never come to be taught by the living God. This is a living God. This is not an old philosophy. This is not an old uh, mythological thing from ancient days. And why in the 21st century would we possibly care what a bunch of nomads believed 3,000 years ago? Well, because God was talking to those nomads. And he kept sending prophets to those nomads. And he made promises to them, and he kept fulfilling those promises. And he described prophecies to them, and all of those prophecies kept coming true. And he said, if somebody claims to be my prophet and they get it wrong, stone them to death. Why? Because this is so important that my truths stand alone and different from everything else that men and women are saying. I'm willing, in fact, I know we've said this before, how many people would volunteer to be that prophet? Well, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get it about 99% right. 
And on Tuesday, I'm getting stoned to death because I screwed it up. And God's saying, you know what? I'm, I'm putting the standard that high because I am a living, authoritative, sovereign God, and I can consistently speak the truth through fallible, sinful human beings because I'm getting my word accomplished. And he promises this. He says, when I send my word out, it will accomplish what I sent it to do. And that fits with this. If I hate the false way and I'm willing to take teaching, I'm willing to receive teaching to be transformed, and that's it. It's, it's always teaching to be transformed. Not just teaching to know more. But I know the truth, and that truth changes my character. Into the character, as Kim prayed again, into the character of Jesus Christ. Most of you know this. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit, is a description of the character of Jesus Christ. And kindness is a part of that. And in different passages, he'll pick a different part of that character, but he keeps saying, pay attention to character. The truth without character is dead knowledge. And just trying to work on character without the truth, you're going to go down some really false paths. You need your spirit aligned with him. You need the truth correcting him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this gathering of your sons and daughters. Father, both here in the building, but also all the brothers and sisters that are with us on Zoom. And I thank you that we are one fellowship. We are one body. Because Jesus Christ is the head of this body. And we are all so imperfect, so unfinished. And Father, it's amazing in recognizing how unfinished we are that we are joyfully welcome in the presence of a holy God because your son's righteousness is our covering. And Father, we know that, but you want us to think it and understand it and believe it more and more and more. That we keep growing in our comprehension of who you are as the creator God who loved sinners and sent your son to save us. Who Jesus is as a sacrifice who triumphed over the enemy, took on our sin, took on our, our punishment so we could be forgiven. To comprehend your Holy Spirit coming to dwell in us and bring us the life of Christ and bring us insight and bring us spiritual gifts to bless one another. And Father, truth on top of truth on top of truth about who you are. And then flowing from that, the truth of who we are now as your sons and daughters and what's possible for us. Father, you know that in, in this gathering, there's bound to be somebody, Father, who feels in despair about their sin, who feels hopeless. And sometimes they've actually fought a hard fight and then they gave up. And they believed about themselves that they were not capable of victory. And Father, I pray that your spirit would be stirring up fresh hope in them. Fresh hope. That's about your word, about your spirit, about the life and power and authority of Jesus Christ going within them. About the fellowship of believers who can stand with them. 
whether it's a room full of believers or one believer that they trust, that they do not have to fight alone. Father, thank you for what you're doing in this fellowship. Thank you for what you're doing in my life. Thank you for what you're doing in the lives of every single son and daughter of God in this room. But Father, we also pray that if there's anyone in the room that does not yet know you, has not yet trusted in your son's death on the cross to pay for their sin, has not said yes to your offer, that your spirit would prevail on them and they would, they would be very aware that you are pursuing them in love. You're not out to condemn them. Although apart from Jesus, we stand condemned. You're out to rescue them from condemnation. You're out to rescue them from an eternity of darkness. You're out to rescue them into the kingdom where Jesus gets to be king of their heart. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your word and your truth. In Jesus' name.